thanks for being here uh, in the room, and thanks for joining us online. If this is your first time with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC, and uh, this week we are continuing a series we began a couple of weeks ago. We're looking at the letter of James. It's all the way toward the end of the New Testament, and we're calling this walk through this letter written to the early church, although incredibly applicable to us today. As a matter of fact, everyone that I know who has ever read through the book of James, and I don't know if you've read through it or not, but everyone who has read this letter has just commented on how practical it is to our faith. So I don't know if you agree with that or not, but we're calling this study Achilles because Achilles heel, and Achilles heel refers to any weakness or vulnerable point in someone, even someone very strong. And so we're looking at what James is telling us And we're looking at areas of our lives that can be an Achilles heel for any of us who is a disciple of Jesus. And I know I've mentioned this before, that we all know disciple is not a common 21st century word. I get that. Uh, But it is a very common 1st century word. The most common name that followers of Jesus were called in that day. And so uh, when we talk about what a disciple is here, 21st century at MCC, we're saying that a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by him, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. By the way, that's what we're going to be talking about at Midweek Connect that Chuck mentioned earlier. So if you haven't registered yet, I hope that you will. But especially for those of us who are new disciples, what we're looking at, listen, if you're new to following Jesus, Some of the stuff we're talking about can really catch you off guard. You'll recognize it right away, and you'll realize how it can be a trap. But even for those of us who have been disciples for years and years and years of our lives, those who are very mature in their faith still have an Achilles heel in their faith. And James identifies uh, potential. So the third Achilles heel we're looking at is right out of the second chapter of James, and it has to do with this question. How do you treat people? And before we start, I'm just going to say that most of us probably think that we pretty much have this one, you know, under control. We've we've pretty much got this one taken care of, and big picture, maybe this isn't a problem here at MCC. Maybe. Uh, But I wonder if you'll discover what I did as I was preparing for this morning. There are still at least moments in my life when when I struggle with this. So, evidently, this is an issue in the early church. And so James writes to them about it and says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. So I don't know if you ever do that or not, show favoritism to somebody. Uh, You can read that partiality. You can also read it prejudice. The New English Bible calls it snobbery. Don't be a snob. Uh, The Greek word for favoritism is actually a compound word. It's two words that are put together. The first one means to receive, and the second word means the face. And so literally, it means to receive the face or to take someone at face value. Uh, It's superficial judgment. James says, don't do that. The Good News version of the Bible says, never treat anybody in a different way according to their outward appearance. And you and I both know this is a common social disease. And favoritism is a problem because we are showing favoritism to this person at the expense of that person. And we may not even use the same criteria. So in our notes, I put a few things that maybe we use uh, to show. We use to base our reasoning for showing favoritism. But sometimes we show favor to people because of their appearance. Beauty is everything in our world. Social science research actually shows that a person's physical appearance 
has a meaningful impact on their life experiences and opportunities. For the most part, attractive people, we enjoy a lot of perks. I was just checking, see who's paying attention. Prolonged laughter is not uh, needed. In his book, Beauty Pays, economist David Hamermas shows that attractive people are more likely to be employed and are more likely to be paid higher wages and more likely to be approved for a loan and to get better terms on those loans and to have better looking and higher status spouses. Attractive criminals uh, will receive lighter sentences for their crimes. And occasionally, their mugshots go viral and they end up with fan clubs and modeling contracts. You can Google hot convict for that story. (laughs) But seriously, don't. Uh, So how do you judge people? Do you judge them by what they're wearing? Do you judge them by their facial hair or their tattoos or their height or their weight? Sometimes we judge people by their ancestry, their race, their family background. Sometimes we give special consideration for age. They're too young, they're too old, or they're young, or they're whatever. Uh, Sometimes uh, we prefer people for their achievement. We show preferential treatment because of achievement. Our society gushes over winners, and we forget about losers. As a matter of fact, a study determined that when it comes to the Super Bowl in the NFL, it is better to have not played in the Super Bowl than to play and lose in that game. Success and status are key words. Even in our faith, we have our own superstars. There are big names within the Christian church that all of us would recognize, authors, musicians, speakers, pastors of large churches, and some of them demand star treatment, and others, whether they demand it or not, we want to extend it to them because of who they are. But the most common reason we favor people, I'm wondering what you think it is, the most common is affluence, wealth. Uh, we judge people by the money that they have or don't have, whether they're rich or poor. And so here, really, here's the question that helps you determine if that's you. How do you look? What attitude do you have toward those who, who make more money than you do? What is the attitude you carry for those who make less money than you do? This actually is the area that James picks out in the early church. It's the illustration he gives in verses 2 to 4. So in verse 2, two guys come into church uh, who are strangers And we know that they're new to the church because they don't know where to sit. And verse 2 says that one guy has a gold ring. Literally, the Greek says that he's gold-fingered. Because in the New Testament times, the first century, uh, you could rent rings to show off how wealthy uh, that you were. And they would wear rings on every finger except for their middle finger. And they would sew jewels into their clothing. I want you to notice, by the way, that when James is talking about this, he doesn't criticize the guy for being wealthy. He criticizes the church for paying special attention to him because he's wealthy. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with having wealth. So let's make this practical. Elon Musk has just walked into our service, or Bill Gates, or Warren Buffett, or Ryan Day. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 or, you get me off track, or, or The Rock, and right, you're the greeter. And the rock has walked in, into our lobby. What are you thinking? Look at verses 3 and 4. How, listen, where would you like to see? Can I take your coat? Would you like a cup of coffee? No, no, not the paper cup. Let me get you an MCC cup so you can drink out of that. But the next person comes in and is poverty-stricken. And he's shabby. 
And he has holes in his Levi's and not the kind that you pay more money to get put in your pants, right? (laughs) And he doesn't have any deodorant, so he's smelly. His hair is unkempt. He looks bad. What do you say to him? Or do you say anything to him? I mean, do you even say hi or welcome to MCC? And the greeter says, hey, you, stand over there. Or better yet, why don't you stick with me? Not real close, just close enough I can see and not close enough that I could smell you. Um, too tough to be realistic, maybe here? The Greek literally says, you can sit under my footstool. And in that day and age, uh, in our day, day and age, the more realistic response may be, sit wherever you want, but you're going to sit by yourself. I mean, could that happen here? I was reading an advice column, and one of the letters said our 23-year-old son married a worker, a woman who works as a stripper in a nightclub. And I told him that as long as she continues in this disgraceful job, that we do not want to be associated with her. My son insists that we include this woman in all of our family gatherings, but I refuse. My younger sons, who are both in high school, are embarrassed by their brother's new wife. If this girl could find a respectable job, we would include her in our lives. Are we unreasonable like my son says. So what would you write back to her? I mean, this could be more important than you think. I didn't tell you what city that story originated from. What if I told you that it actually came out of Dayton and that I've had an opportunity to sit down and talk to this couple and they've been wondering lately if Jesus really would love someone like them because their family doesn't, would he give them that chance and what kind of place maybe he would have in, in their, their lives and if they could come here? What would you say to them? To ease your conscience, the letter did not originate Dayton. I have not spoken to that particular couple. But I'm wondering what kind of emotions that stirred in you, and so I... I need to ask, is Bill Gates more welcome than a poor person here? Would Joe Burroughs be more likely to be included than someone whose lifestyle choices we don't agree with, that don't line up with our faith? Is this just a first century problem or some other church's problem? Or is this our problem as well? James says, listen, there's, there are problems with with showing this kind of favoritism, and he gives them to us. First, it's not Jesus-like. I mean, even Jesus' enemies had to admit, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. You don't pay any attention to who they are. And if you want to be like Jesus, can I just say, you cannot, you cannot play favorites. James would write this, my brothers as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do not show favoritism. Paul would write to the church in Rome because evidently this wasn't just an isolated incident. God does not show favoritism. The fact that Jesus showed dignity to everybody he met. Listen, if there is one place in the world where there shouldn't be any kind of discrimination, it ought to be the church. There is discrimination everywhere else. It shouldn't be here, no matter who you are or what your background is, you need to know, and your friends need to know, that you are welcome in this place. James also says that favoritism is not reasonable. Look at verses 5 to 7. 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So first of all, we need to understand God actually chose the poor. Now, he's not, James is not saying that it's good to be poor, that it's bad to be rich, and he's not saying that only the poor will be saved. As a matter of fact, all the way back in Leviticus, beginning of the Bible, Old Testament, we read, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Wealth in and of itself does not deserve any special treatment. I just want to make clear, your value is not based on your valuables. Your net worth and your self-worth are two entirely different things. There's a big difference. But in the first century, how awkward would it have been if a master found himself sitting next to his slave in worship. Even more to the point, in its early days, the church was predominantly poor and humble. If a wealthy person was converted to the faith, there must have been, there had to have been, a very real temptation to make a fuss over them and to treat them as a special trophy. And James says the rich couldn't care less. They could not care less about you. Look at what he says in verse 6. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? I want you to understand that time he's writing this. It was the Roman, no, the Roman nobles who were feeding Christians to the lions. It was the upper crust that was persecuting the Christians, judging the Christians, insulting the Christians. And so James writes to them and says, why are you worried uh, about impressing them? They're certainly not worried about impressing you. Do you know why we like to kiss up to the affluent? It's because we think we're going to get something to them or get something from them. That's why we cater and get close to people who are celebrities We hope something's going to fall our way. And that's why we avoid the poor. First of all, we know we're not going to get anything out of them. But it's possible we think they're going to embarrass us. And James says that's not reasonable at all. He also says it's unloving to show favoritism. It's verses 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism... You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, why is that called the royal law? It's because if we obey that one, if we can get that one right, everything else just kind of falls into place. Paul would write to the church in Galatia, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. John would write toward the end of the New Testament, he would write in his letter, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. The Bible says... That how we relate to each other is how, how we show our love to God. You want to know how much you love God? How do you treat other people? That's the reflection. James says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And here's why he says this, because in verse 11, right, so he says if you break one part, it's all shattered. He compares favoritism in verse 11. Do you see what he's comparing it to? Adultery and murder. Why does he do that? Because we think favoritism is a small sin, right? It's no big deal. No blood, no foul. Not one of the biggies, right? And James says, man, you are absolutely right. It is, it is no bigger than adultery. Favoritism is, is no, no better, no worse than murder. And we think, so what if I'm kind of partial to my kind of people? 
What does God care about that? And God says, to me, it's all the same. It's all important. Why does God care about this anyway? Maybe it's because he understands it. The leaders in Jesus' day, the religious leaders in his day, judged him by human standards, and they rejected him. He came from the wrong city. He came from Nazareth, and the Old Testament tells us that nothing good can come from Nazareth. He was not a graduate of their accepted schools. He did not have the official approval of the people in power. He had no wealth, and his followers were this nondescript mob that included tax collectors and sinners. I mean, maybe that's why skin color, or whether you're a man or a woman, or your past makes no difference to Jesus. So how do we make sure that it doesn't make any difference to us as well? How do we make sure this is not an Achilles heel in our lives as individuals and our lives collectively as a congregation? First, I want to make sure you catch this. They're all in the notes. I will be judged by my attitude, so I must accept everyone. And I wonder how many people you hear those words. I have to accept everyone, and it makes you kind of cringe a little bit. I want to make sure you know it starts here in the head. If we want to change our behavior, we have to change the way we think and accept everyone. I like the way what Henry Drummond said it's in the notes. How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by the unlovely characters of those who profess to be on the inside? Paul would write this in Romans 15. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Do you know why people have a hard time accepting others? Especially, I think, church people. It's because we confuse acceptance with approval. And there's a big difference. I can accept someone without approving all their life, uh, lifestyles. They may be doing something entirely contrary to the Word of God, and I can accept them as a person without approving of their choices. Even more so, Christian love doesn't mean that I, I must like a person and agree with them on everything. I, I may not like his vocabulary. I may not like her habits. And I may not want them as an intimate friend, but Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. That I have to accept people the way God has accepted people. And I know it's old. But MCC is a, is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. <laughs> Old and cliche, but we have to accept everybody. I also want to make sure you catch this. I will be judged on my deeds, so I have to appreciate everybody, which, by the way, goes a little bit further than accepting everyone. We need to not only accept them, we need to find something about them that we like. Paul would write this to the church in Philippi. Do nothing out of uh, selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. People need to know that this is a place where they are valued for who they are, not for what they have, not for what they've not, they're not doing anymore, but just for being. Last, we need to make sure we, if we want to make sure we don't have an Achilles heel in this area. We need to provide a place that treats other people the way God has treated us. So I want to make sure you catch this because I will be judged by my words. I have to affirm everybody. Give everybody a lift when you can. Paul would say, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Listen, wasn't there a day in your life, and for some of us, maybe it was a long time ago. For others of us, maybe it was this week 
and you realized that you were not worthy of the kingdom of God and you knew that you deserved hell and God whispered in your ear I love you so much I wish you would be my son I love you so much I wish you would I wish you would decide to be part of my family I wish you were my daughter that's what we need to let everybody know you have friends who who don't believe that they need to know that that God loves them so much loves them so badly that he wants them to be his son or daughter I love what Louis Giglio said I wish I'd put it in the notes I did not but he said if you're telling yourself you don't deserve a second chance from God Remind yourself you didn't deserve the first one either. Let me say that one more time. If you're telling yourself you don't deserve a second chance from God, remind yourself that you didn't deserve the first one either. And yet we all know that we get a second chance from him every time we need one. Every time. And Jesus wants us to be reminded that what he so freely offers us, we should freely extend to others as well. Nothing can stop a church that's filled with love, but it doesn't happen accidentally. Everybody must contribute. Everybody does contribute to the atmosphere, the environment of a church. Some positively and some negatively which begs this question, and so I'll put it on the screen, make sure you got it. If you were the only person that a visitor met this morning, would they come back just because they met you? If someone new was here this morning and they met you and you're the only person they met here and they sat down, but they met you out in the lobby or they talked to you in this room or said something out in the parking lot, they met you and you're all they have to go on. Would they come back because of Jesus' influence in their life through you? It's a valid question as we stop to recommit ourselves to Jesus through our communion. So we're about to uh, go into a time where we hold the emblems that remind us of Jesus' body that was given for us and the juice that reminds us of his blood that was spilled for us and that all of us have received multiple second chances. And because of that, Because of that, we examine ourselves. So Paul would write to the church in Corinth, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. So here's the thing this morning. We will examine ourselves to see if favoritism is an Achilles heel for us. Is that something where you've struggled this week? Have you shown favoritism to somebody because of something? Or have you looked down on somebody because of something in their life? And repent. Ask God for his forgiveness because in that instance you did not reflect him. And the world so badly needs to see and experience him. And so we repent when we fall short and we recommit ourselves to following him. And if you've never given yourself to him... I just want you to know, well, first of all, as you examine yourself, I hope you'll recognize that. Going to church and following Jesus are two entirely different things. Sometimes they line up in someone's life, but not always. Sometimes people just go to church. And if that's you, 
and you've been wondering, well, what, do I, what does that look like? I had someone come up and talk to me between hours. I said, I would like to make that commitment. If that's you, let's make that happen. So as we examine ourselves, we ask God to forgive us where we fall short. We thank him for where he has helped us succeed in helping other people see him. And we recommit ourselves to him today. So let's pray and then we'll do this together. God, thank you that we get to represent you to people all around us, beginning in our homes. And they see us most clearly. And they see our strengths and they see our weaknesses. And it may be the place we begin to practice favoritism if we're not careful. And Father, our neighbors, the people we go to school with, the people that we work with, the people we're on the ball team with, the groups, the clubs that we belong to, they see us differently because they get a closer look. And it is our prayer as disciples of your son that we would clearly reflect him and not show favoritism, but that we would extend his love and his grace and his mercy to everyone around us that we can. And Father, for this week, we just want to take a moment collectively as we examine ourselves to repent if we have failed you in this area. Father, as we take these emblems that remind us of Jesus, of your body and blood, thank you for loving us so much that you would do this. Help us to love you back, and we recommit ourselves to you through this act, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So we take the, the wafer that reminds us of Jesus' body. that reminds us of his blood and the power, the power of his blood to forgive us and to roll through our lives into the lives of people around us, that we would see them, accept them, love them, treat them the way Jesus has treated us so that they can see him and be drawn to him. So we remember together. Father, as we remember, it's not just an event from 2,000 years ago. We remember for today, and we recommit our lives for today. That we would represent you well in Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live a life that helps other people believe in God. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.